Artificial intelligence will completely transform our world. But what is AI? Why will it affect you? And how can you and your business survive and thrive through the AI revolution? Welcome to AI and You. Here is your host, author, speaker, and futurist, Peter Scott. Hello and welcome to episode 156. Today's guest is Dorian Sels, calling in from Zurich, Switzerland. Dorian is the co-founder and CEO of Squero, an AI company. He'll be helping us understand the place of large language models in big business right now, some of the advantages and pitfalls to look out for. Dorian founded the Swiss market leader search platform Local.ch and was previously partner and COO at Namix, the largest e-business consultancy in Switzerland and Germany. He holds a PhD from the University of St. Gallen and a master's in economics from the University of Geneva and has been named a member of the Hall of Fame of Switzerland's top 100 digital shapers. Let's get into the interview with Dorian Seltz. Dorian, welcome to AINU. Peter, thank you for having me. So you have been looking at, in your function as a leader of Squero, you've been looking at large language models, the explosive effect that they're having on business today. I think a lot of people are very eager to learn about that because they feel a bit like deer caught in the headlights with something that's come upon them so rapidly and so I'm going to make them wait a little bit longer because first I want the, you to tell us how you got started in this business, where you came from in your background, what you started learning and how that artificial intelligence entered your world. Sure. I'm a farmer's son coming from the middle of a little, little, little village in the midst of Switzerland. I had then the opportunity to go to Geneva and study economics. And back in the 90s, maybe remember that, Peter, there was this famous quote of computers show up everywhere except in productivity statistics. And I did a master's thesis back in, what was that, 94, 5 or so on that topic. And that got me into contact, or me in contact with the Institute of Applied Computer Systems in St. Gallen, which is a renowned business school, university business school where I then got offered a PhD position and got to really work on computer science stuff, applied computer science stuff. We, at the time, wired the first web service in the eastern part of Switzerland and built what was back in sort of the mid-90s, the so-called electronic mobility, the first window into how to do online commerce. And our first online commerce shop back in probably 96 or so was a local bakery. They didn't sell much, but the real first success was the pizza place around the corner where we could order online pizza. And for anecdote for your listeners, here's the back end of that pizza service back in the mid 90s when there were no e-commerce sites anywhere available. Effectively, we just had a gateway to a fax machine. So whatever you did order online got produced as a fax in that pizza place. Now, unfortunately, that fax service, that fax machine was put on top of the fridge in the kitchen, and sometimes the paper fell beneath the fridge. So whenever we ordered something online to really be sure that the pizza would be delivered a bit later, 
We had to call them, go and see behind the fridge what we ordered. That was the start of my adventure in IT and generally speaking in internet and internet technologies. Later on, I built a couple of companies and with Squirrel, we've started about 10 years ago on the simple insight that unstructured data, that is textual data, is the biggest part of what is available in terms of data. It's also the fastest growing part of data. And at least 10 years ago, it's at the moment rapidly changing. There was not much outside universities in terms of applied machine learning on these type of data sets. Many, many people at the time, like Excel, obviously, or Tableau or others, ClickView did a lot of things in tabular data, but sort of the same analytics on non-tabular data was kind of like novel and not existing 10, 15 years ago. We had a bit of SaaS, but not much else. So we started to get cracking on this and build a business that today uh, sells its software, our Insights Cloud, between Asia and America and Europe and other places on this planet. That's what we do. That's what I came into this industry. And you were talking about that aphorism that you can see technology effects showing up everywhere except in productivity statistics. And in fact, I was reading exactly that quote again this morning, and it has fascinated and frustrated me for a long time. And so I'm interested in your insights into that. I'm wondering if, for instance, productivity from technology is localized, like are some people experiencing true measurable significant benefits from it, or is it just evenly spread and uniformly terrible? Because I could think, for instance, I could cast my mind back 30 years and imagine that I'm a time traveler to that time and say, you know, in 10 years time, there will exist the ability for anyone on the planet to get any piece of information that is known to any significant group of people instantly for free, mm -hmm. which we have now and have had since Google got going. And mm -hmm. I know that the reaction I would have had and anyone else would have had at that time would be, that is incredible, that is priceless beyond our ability to compute, that will open up a utopian age. People will be dancing in the streets. And I look around now, we've had Google for 20 years, and it's not like that. So where's the productivity gain from that? The productivity gain, as I understood it, from even the internet was barely measurable. And now we're looking mm -hmm. at AI again. So why do so many people make this mistake? Because I'm certainly around a lot of groups that are relentlessly pursuing technology in the sincere belief that the better they get at it, the more productive they're going to be. And yet all the statistics seem to say that they're wrong. Are we living in a mass hallucination or how do we pick this apart? I would not want to talk to kind of like general productivity impacts in society outside maybe the technology sector mm -hmm. of, of which I've been part of the last 25 years. But look at that Solov paradox that actually how it was called back in the 90s, this computers show up everywhere except in productivity statistics. It was from Robert Soloff, a famous economist at the time. And the quip he formed back in, I believe, mid-late 80s, and it only got resolved in about the late 90s. Computers at that stage are 30 plus years old. SAP was in existence. Many, many bigger corporations already had this kind of like ERP, SAP-like systems introduced. And only then you saw an actual impact on productivity statistics. And if you go and research that story back then, the reason was that a novel technology in its early infancy 
is often thought through in a linear way to simply kind of like go do something you do already today, better, faster, simpler, right? So I remember my dad, my mom is a farmer, my dad is a hospital doctor taking me to their hospital and showing me back in the 70s or so when I grew up, the first payroll computer that looked like revolution, but it was these stamped papers and all that, etc. And my dad, I remember that to this day, complained, look, in the early days, I could walk over to this woman in the payroll department if there was an issue with my payslip. Now there are five or six people more that try to, try to keep that computer on track. So what they tried to do at the time was, in a way, logical. They tried to automate a very cumbersome process, process payslips every month, which are largely the same every month, right? Or every two weeks, depending on which geography you live. In the US often it's bi-weekly paychecks, right? Over here in Europe, it's monthly paychecks. And it took quite some time to master the art of doing computerized payslips. Once that was accomplished, indeed, there was productivity gains. Indeed, you could process with less people more payslips than before. The quintessential piece about productivity gains. But it took some moment and Sometimes I feel a bit the same like with what we see today. Take now 30, 40 years plus. What I see at the moment with this advent of these large language models, and obviously the one that keeps at the moment the hype crown called ChatGPT is, it's a bit like a Google moment, right? But to your point, you said Google shows up everywhere except in productivity statistics. I sort of imply what you said. Is would you and I have thought when we saw Google the first time, maybe in 96, 97, that this is the demise of the newspapers as we knew them? Mm. Google at the time had no business model that was later on acquired by their acquisition of DoubleClick. And no one had any idea of what impact the freely available access to information would have through the portal into the internet that effectively Google is. Right? So... And then again, it took quite some time to get that adopted into the mainstream. But today, you can't live with a search engine, whether you use DuckDuckGo or Bing or Google, whatever it is. It became part of a daily life. And 20, 30 years later, you actually see, if you go and follow these studies, at least in pockets like, as an example, administrative work or so, you do see a productivity gains. Now, the question maybe is what happens now with that AI revolution? And I think it's going to be the same thing. The real impact in terms of productivity gains, that will take another 10, 15 years. And here's my view why, right? I sat down together today with a friend of mine who works for Google here in Switzerland, and they have a couple of, like we do, a couple of bigger pilots going within and around those chat technologies that they also have and we have and to provide to customers. And they see the same like we see. You know what? Most of everyday users, they come into a chat interface and simply do keyword search. But that's not what a ChatGPT interface is for. This is for full sentences. So what's the answer that they get? Quite often, not satisfactory. Now, is that now, given all the hype, a sign of the hype is maybe overdone? Yes, maybe. Is it now a sign of we haven't yet learned how to deploy such technologies at the right spot, where it can have a true impact on businesses? I believe it's rather the later. And Give you another example that came across today, a startup that I'm very friendly with, they do sort of document analysis. So say an insurance company that has many, many bills to process or any other company that produces lots of PDFs and needs to reconcile them or so. 
can be a cumbersome affair, right? Because with OCRs not being perfect, the document might not be perfect and all the rest of it. So to automate such a process, there is an entire industry that sprung up around AI tech to support this. Today, this colleague of mine showed me what they can do now with these LLMs. He literally on one page marked the part of that PDF and the LLM immediately produced a schema of what that page is about. So product with the correct product name, product number with the correct product number, and so on. Literally, boom, right? And then he took that schema that he extracted from one document and applied it to another document that was subtly different. And the model was instantaneously able to recognize A, the difference, and still fill out the schema correctly. So product number to the product number field, product name to the product field. Now, the chat piece, I ask myself, is that now really a productivity gain, or is it just us having too much time and wasting a bit of our time. The latter, deploy that scale. Oh, hell, that can automate a big chunk of back office services in many, many, many companies that do that still manually. How long does it take for them to apply and deploy this? A couple of years. So my guesstimate is that this AI revolution will have a massive impact on productivity, but not immediately, only in a few years. Till we as a human uh, race, if I may say so, as an, as technology specialists have understood where that technology really makes an impact and where it's rather just fancy dancy dress to impress and not more and where it really has transformative effects. That would be my view. Where do you see the boundaries of usefulness for large language models in business at the moment, given the amount of attention that there is on them at the moment? They must be overhyped in many ways. And if you are familiar with the Gartner hype cycle, then mm -hmm. inevitably we are pushing up the peak of inflated expectations and there will be people expecting things that these models can't do. And that they are, after all, called stochastic parrots by Tim Nick Gebru yes. and others, and you've talked about that as well which means that there's some level of reasoning that they will pretend to do, but can't. Where do we need to be careful about overreaching with using them in business? I will answer your question in two parts. First, again, with a bit of an analogy. I was invited this morning to a board of a large Swiss industrial company, and there were obviously all questions about ChatGPT and exactly what we just discussed here now, impact on business and all that. And I tried to put that a bit into context and showed them a bit stuff from this book called The Victorian Internet from, I believe, Tom Standage is, is his name. A wonderful book written back in the 90s that depicted the rise of the telegraph, right? And my point to Tom Standage's point is that the introduction of the telegraph has had more impact than anything we've seen ever since. You live in Vancouver Island, you told me. I live here in Zurich. Before the telegraph, A, we would not be able to communicate, and B, if we would have had to communicate by letter, that letter would have been the better part of at least three, four months on its way to you. And if you would have written a response back to me, at least three, four months back, right? So at best, we would have been able, from Vancouver Island to Zurich and back, to have a bit about one ping a year, maybe one and a half, but not much more, right? So think about that. 150 years ago, you organized companies worldwide because there were already global companies, the West Indies Company and the Hudson Bay Company and others, where there was zero ability to immediately communicate. Comes along the telegraph and everything changed overnight, literally. The Brits were able to 
construct a global internet, aka the telegraph relay network, literally within eight years. So within eight years, they shrunk a couple of months to at the start a couple of hours and later just one, two hours. That's what I call change. What we see today is not that big, my view, compared to the impact that thing had at the time. And I alluded to that this morning and showed the Fox the picture of George Pill, a famous pocket thief in London that had a perfect business model. He stole purses from ladies in Victoria train station, boarded the next train, and off he was. If the ladies ran to the police and said, hey, that dude over there with this blue checkered shirt stole my purse, yeah, sure, the police would probably listen to them, but they couldn't do anything because there was no way before the telegraph to communicate faster than the departing train. So whenever George Pill left the train in Clapham Junction, he walked free and enjoyed the content of the purse. Comes along the telegraph, railways being early adopters. Suddenly, the policeman in Clapham Junction arraigns him, and he's totally astonished. What happened here? He believed this was magic. This was a wonder. And why do we know that? Because the City of London has digitized a lot of these protocols from that time. And you can go and read that in the archives of the City of London online. So what I want to say with that is, for him, the advent of the telegraph was literally magic. And yet it took another 10 to 20 to 30 years for everybody else to understand that maybe we are better off with having less pocket thieves in Victoria Station. But the telegraph effectively was the inception moment of, say, modern financial markets. There were no big financial markets prior to Telegraph. How could you? If you wanted to trade stocks between New York and London and the round-trip time was two months by boat, mm -hmm. suddenly it was two hours. Now, why do I tell you that story? Because you ask me, where are the boundaries of this? And what's going to happen? A, I do not know. I keep it with Einstein. The only thing certain about the future is it's uncertain. And yet, if I'd have two points, I think at the moment, we all tend to look into the wrong corner, right? As in, to a point I made before about Google, everybody understood this is better search, but nobody understood this is the end of the business models of newspapers and other advertisement-driven businesses, because this all will go to Google, which effectively happened 25 years later. Nobody understood this when these guys came along. I believe neither them, they had no business model. And when the Telegraph came along, yes, indeed, the railway companies immediately understood that this is a way to maximize utilization of a single track railway line by better operating this, by being able to communicate to the next station, hey, there's a train coming, you don't need to wait or so, send it to the next siding. And I do not yet think any one of us has understood where the true impact of these LLMs will be. I do not believe to make it plain that this hype at the moment around chat is here to last. I do, however, believe that the underlying tech of these large language models and the deep learning elements behind will transform segments of the company quite massively. So I can easily imagine, based on what I was told about this other company doing this document extraction, that back office tasks such as bill reconciliation, such as support stuff, etc., such as mundane pay slips again, reconciliation, all the rest of it, that this will be massively automated beyond what we ever have seen today. So if I'd be somebody like Automation Anywhere or, or any of these robotic process automation guys, 
I'd, I'd fear for my subscription business mm. as an example. And there will be other such unforeseen elements where this will strike, but I don't believe it will strike where everybody thinks it will strike. So I'm wondering about where we're expecting too much of a large language model. I mean, this is a technology that's essentially the telephone autocomplete on steroids. Mm -hmm. It's not an adequate explanation. I don't find it an adequate explanation, but it's the best one that we've got. And that makes it very, very good language because that's what it's trained on. But that also means that to chat GPT, there's no essential difference between two plus two equals what and to be or not to be. That is the what? They're both language. One of them you can get creative on and improvise on Shakespeare and people will applaud. And the other one, if you don't give exactly the right answer, you're wrong. Business operates on both of these. When it comes to generating yep. content for marketing, for instance, then a chat model is great. When you've got to assimilate a whole bunch of invoices and purchase orders of different formats and line up all yep. of the dates into the right months and add them up together. You cannot be creative. Nope. Are these large language models going to automate that sort of process? Only if you combine them with other sets of technologies would be my immediate answer. And not quoting me, I might be a no-name in that industry, but quoting Jan Le Guen, the head honcho in terms of AI over at Meta and Facebook, and I very much agree with him. We've published about that a year ago, two years ago, and he did so most recently as well. An LLM inherently is, at the end of the day, probability compute. It predicts the probability of the next best word, full stop. So out of that come two, three elements. A, to your point, wonderful for creative elements, where a bit, a bit of epiphany is good, aka this probability or that probability, but really bad, as an example, if it is about, as an example, the analysis of a health record of a heart disease patient, where precision in terms of what you're going to do next is required and essential. So forget about an LLM in itself being the solution. What you need to do, you need to turn to stochastic pavement. So I'm firmly of the belief in an enterprise context, it holds great promise if you connect that. And obviously, I speak a bit here to what we do professionally at Squirrel if you connect it to an existing information retrieval stack. Let me explain. An existing information retrieval stack that is essentially built around the notion of search with the notion at core of any search engine of this precision recall argument, right? Where you want to have a good precision in the way you recall the documents that you have ingested. If you take this and marry that with an LLM, you get closer to, I think, where we need to be to make that widely applicable. Why? You use the LLM what it is good for. The LLM, what caught all our imagination attention is this human-like question-answering element that looks so natural, that's so impressive because it generates these chunks of text that are naturally flowing and actually good texts quite often. Even, to your point, Peter, that the content of it is sometimes off by a bit because it hallucinates. Now, if you take such a question, and before you display that answer, you run that through an IR stack, both before you actually prompt the answer, and then also once you get the answer back to cross-check the entailment chain against your existing information retrieval stack, and then only you release the answer, you have done a few things. That is, you have probably had a better prompt input than most people can do, and have 
in one of my prior companies, we built local.ch, which became the largest website in Switzerland. We digitized the whole of the yellow page and white page days back in 2003 to nine or so. I can tell you my average keyword length was 1.23. That's not enough to express restaurant in, in Vancouver Island. That is Vancouver Island rest. I don't know, maybe that's true. Or restaurant in van. No, we don't want that. We want a restaurant in Vancouver Island. And by the way, even with type ahead of Google and Google priming us for 20 years, the average keyword length is still barely two. Way off a full sentence. So most people will not be able outside of bit experts to have a continuous interaction based on full sentences. So number one, you need to supply that element by actually do a bit of prompt engineering in the back end. Number one. Number two, as I said, in the moment, you keep the parrot honest because you have ingested in a company setup, the company data, you know what is and what is not. So if the LLM produces to that heart disease patient a certain segment of answer, you can go and cross-validate that against your internal data and see whether the LLM is off the rails or not. If it is off the rails, you suppress the answer. And before anyone here on the podcast now yells censorship, let's revisit this argument in a moment, or you can simply point to the actual evidence of it. Now, to the piece about suppression and bias, yes, that is an issue, but that actually is what every search engine does, ever, always. And by the way, not only digital search engines, the old search engines were called in German language, Duden, Brockenhaus, or the, how was it called? Cambridge Lexicon, what was it called? Encyclopedia Britannica. Encyclopedia Britannica, thank you, Peter. Long gone since, right? But that was in itself also censorship because it was not the entire world in it. It was a specific way how the authors of this Encyclopedia Britannica saw the world. That was in it. Right. We have a part of our brain called the reticular formation that censors the information yeah. that comes in from the outside world because we couldn't handle That's all it. of it at once. So anyway, to make a point, I think LLM's whole promise, if you keep them honest by connecting them to, as an example, information retrieval stack, to iron out the weaknesses of LLMs. But then in a the combination, they can be powerful. Mm. And it sounds like you're making the case for this function that cross-checks the AI. If I sort of pretend to be a psychologist, it's as though mm -hmm. the large language model is the id, and you need a superego to keep it in check and validate its purpose, which needs to be another kind of technology. Because I think one of the problems that people have at the moment with large language models and hallucination is that they think that the hallucination is where the large language model is not behaving properly. But it isn't. That's where the large language model is just doing what it always does. Mm -hmm. To it, everything is hallucination. Yeah. It's just yeah. us that puts that interpretation on some of its results. But within the way that it operates, it's great. So you can't treat it as though it's a bug in the function of the LLM it's only a bug in the function of some larger system that includes mm -hmm. the LLM. Yep. And now I hear you talking about the need for some system that does that kind of cross-checking. What does that look like architecturally? How do you make such a thing effectively? Yeah, we've started working on that and publishing that a couple of months ago. And by now, also other people obviously have done the same. There are examples on our website for that, how to work that. But I think about you.com that does this in a similar way. Elastic just released it in a similar way. Um, first, what you do is say in an enterprise setup and say, make it specific. You want to make available to your employee, say your employee handbook, right? 
how to get, say, holidays authorized. Super simple. What do you need? You need, obviously, to ingest the employee handbook. That might be in some internal system, I don't know, whatever, Confluence, or in some other intranet-type system, where you have a couple of pages that describe what the company does for employees, what the also is expected for employees, amongst others, how to apply for vacations before they get granted. Now, you take all these documents, and in a traditional information retrieval stack, you obviously ingest them, you start to categorize them, classify them, and all the rest of it. And without an LLM, you make them now searchable. The Google way, the Skr way, the Lucid way, the MyBreeze way, our lovely colleagues, competitors, and the inside engines that are around. With a keyword-based approach, you might find vacation, but then normally you have the so-called vacation issue that is in these systems, you get ingested the vacation policy 21, 22, 23. And most of these systems work in a way that they also take into account user interaction. So what happens on January 1st when the new policy comes into effect? By definition, the page most viewed is not 2023 vacation policy, but the one from prior years, right? It's just one day old. So what do people do? They click automatically on the wrong result. And by that, they reinforce effectively the whiting of the wrong result. But that's just an anecdote. What effectively happens is you have in a traditional information retrieval stack under control what is and what is not. You also have under control who is allowed to see this vacation policy because you would have ingested access control levels, right? Access control lists, etc. Come in an LLM. What do you do? And the way we do that is we have effectively in that ingestion pipeline, we think of this ingestion pipeline a bit like a manufacturing line, an assembly line, comes in a document and we start to apply lots of little elements on that document to recognize what this is about, which company is mentioned, which people are mentioned, down to the sentence level, start to structure it. This sentence talks about this, this sentence talks about that. Effectively, the embeddings and all that, right? And then we store that. So after that, we have a computational understanding of that document. And now you can expose that to an LLM. And effectively, into that workbench, into that assembly line, you simply plug in an LLM. So when the question comes in the query, you expose that question first to your information retrieval stack to gather the potential candidates of answers. You then take that selection to the LLM that effectively creates an answer for you that you can, as I laid out before, cross-check against what you have in your information retrieval stack to see, is Jordan allowed to see this document or is this a document that is restricted to Peter? Because we already have that know-how. And then I present to you the answer. That's technically how we do it. Make it sound so easy. <laughs> yes, it is. You take it from us, take it from Elastic, take it from others. There are those graphs that show how this is done. It sounds easy, but it's it's tricky. Oh, yes, that was uh, sarcasm. It's yeah. not easy, I've, I know. No, it's hard. But it's good. That gives us and the other people in that space a bit of a competitive advantage mm. against people that just come around and say, oh, I can do everything with ChatGPT. How volatile has the space of doing business with AI become in the last four months? I have never seen the Gartner hype cycle being run through in such a fast way. <laughs> it explodes your brain. Right? Mm. What was last year's thing? Uh, last year's and the prior's thing, you had at least two years of metaverse, right? Yes. Which is for non-tech people already very fast. For tech, you say two years, okay. What was it before? Blockchain, right? Maybe five, six years ago, blockchain starts to become. Yep. And now you have literally in a couple of months that whole AI revolution. It, it blows your mind. 
but it's a hype cycle, right? It's from start to totally overdone hype to the valley of delusionment. And I don't think we have yet seen the plot of productivity. That's still a bit out. But you have literally seen that first part of the quadrants yes. pushed into just four or five months. Well, and for some years, I'd been expecting another AI winter, and yet we didn't get one, I think, because we managed to keep pushing the technology just a bit further ahead of the disillusionment. Do you foresee disillusionment and some form of backlash? Do you think that within the next few months at this rate or a few years? Or what shape do you think that that reaction is going to take? Very good question, Peter. I could imagine any one of the following scenarios. And on the timeline, I'm not sure. I could imagine, let's start with the easy one. Let's take something like GitHub Copilot, right? You apply LLMs to support programming, software code generation. GitHub Copilot is subject to the same hallucination elements like we just discussed previously. So I bet you the following scenario will happen soon, or maybe it already happened. Some younger programming person in a larger, say, financial institution uses that copilot piece, whether allowed or not, to create some code for some trading system. It's Friday evening, seven, the person has a date, and the supervisor to kind of like cross-validate the code already left because also had a date. But there is a hard deadline, so the person checks it in and maybe knows the password from the supervisor because that's often done that way, right? To circumvent all the rest of it. Here we go. And you have suddenly checked in code that seemingly looks okay, but would have merited somebody else cross-checking it. And then you have that race condition that now kind of like is hidden deep into that code base. And then there comes this very moment where that thing is called and that race condition explodes in the face of everyone, and you have the equivalent of one of those fat finger moments where you literally sink that bank because of a GitHub Copilot-induced coding error, right? And there will be a lot of people asking a lot of questions. How could that ever happen? We had stringent guidelines, how to check in code. There would be the usual obfuscation to do away with the fact that they maybe had had these guidelines, but they worked around these guidelines. And then there will be all these questions. Who is now responsible? Is it now the programmer or is it co-pilot? Because all of that is not resolved. So I do foresee this type of mess, A, in terms of economic disaster for that particular bank and the involved individuals, but also the litigation that will follow soon after to kind of like figure out who is responsible. So yes, I do foresee that. I also do foresee a bit more sinister stuff because this is just to have a good laugh on the cost of some bankers that were a bit too greedy. But I also foresee some sinister stuff. At the end of the day, let's make no mistake, right? With the advent of this type of technology, you can do, as an example, a positive or depending on the viewpoint, negative risk selection. Who is allowed to get the treatment for X? What is the prescription we do for Y? If you hand that over to AI unchecked, I guarantee you, we just talked about hallucination, you will see outcomes that are not okay. Mm -hmm. As in, they probably confine somebody to a certain death. And I do not think that we as a society have yet grasped that in full. Mm -hmm. And again, to take an analogy, right? The first airplanes were pretty unsafe ventures. Every other plane fell out of the sky and killed its passengers. Not every other, but quite a few. 
Today, airplanes are the safest mode of transport by far. Why? Because 80 years of stringent regulation made sure that whatever happens up in the air doesn't just stay up in the air because it eventually will come down, but is looked after to the last detail. And the learnings of that worked into the procedures of how to build planes, how to operate planes, and so on. And I think we as a society would do good to take that analogy to heart and apply it to these kinds of transformative technologies like AI. Do you think the European Union AI Act will get out ahead of this enough to head off some of the scenarios you were talking about? I could imagine. I could imagine. I think it's a good first step. And obviously, it's a bit funny that an entrepreneur says, yeah, it's regulation. Right. But I want to make that for your listeners very clear. Standardization and regulation is good for business. And if you don't believe me, you don't need to believe me. Just read the report of the Seattle Times of the Boeing 737 MAX disaster and its impact A on Boeing and its industry. And obviously even worse for the people that didn't survive those two fatal brain crashes. Mm -hmm. Right. So standards and regulation at the end make for safe business. Now we obviously can debate on which side of the table you should write up that regulation, how tight, et cetera, et cetera. But to take another analogy outside AI, there were a number of bank collapses in the US in the couple of last weeks. There was, with the exception of Credit Suisse, which was different, none in Europe. None. Why? Because the type of balance sheet that these smaller banks like Federal, what was it called, First first Federal or so, and, and SVB or so had, they would not be tolerated over here. right? Hence, they did not go bankrupt, the similar banks like here like SVB over in Europe. Now, what I want to say that with respect to the European Union, is it doing the right thing? I'm not an expert. I can't tell. But again, to take an analogy, right? We all hate these bloody pop-ups for these GDPR-like consent windows, right? We hate them. And it's, it's really a bad part of that GDPR regulation. But you know what the biggest compliment for that GDPR regulation is? That a freewheeling economy like California actually adopted a literal copy of it. And as a consequence of that, we had had for the first time a serious debate about who's the real owner of personal information. Is it you, Peter, or me, or is it somebody else we signed in over my personal information? And look at the consequences. Apple, as an example, as a consequence of these kind of laws, starts to tidy up its shop in terms of handing over, say, user information without consent to somebody like Facebook and vice versa. Mm -hmm. So... Is the European Union on a good track here? I cannot say in full, but at least it's a start. And given that it's an institution that at the end of the day, with all its flaws, is built on a relatively good democratic process, we can be sure that the outcome might not be perfect. Indeed, we can be sure about that. But we also can be sure that the outcome is good enough to take us to the next level. Well, that sounds like a good note on which to start wrapping up here. What can you tell our listeners who are interested in what you and Squiro do about how to find out more about that? Well, to all your listeners, come to Squiro.com. We offer there an easy to start, easy to use, self-serviceable, GPT-enabled application. You can come to our website. You simply upload a couple of PDF documents or other documents in the zip file. And you get going, you have a chat-enabled employee handbook, you have a chat-enabled 
ISO or SOX or so um, certification handbook just to start. And then out of that, you can build out and start to adopt chat GPT-like technologies into your enterprise. Fascinating. It's been a real pleasure learning about the cutting edge intersection of large language models and business with you. Thank you, Dorian Sells, for coming on AI and You. Thank you, Peter, for having me. It was an enjoyable hour. Thank you. Thank you to your listeners. That's the end of the interview. Really thought-provoking. I can't help but think of all kinds of possible applications of large language models to places where computation wasn't previously possible, like, for instance, whether you could analyze rumors on social media and automatically classify them to make investing decisions based on the old adage of buy the rumor, sell the news. Well, it sounds like a good idea as long as I don't have to figure out how to do it. Anyway, that one's for free. By the way, our guest, Missy Cummings, also talked about the 737 MAX and its problems a few episodes ago from her experience as a naval aviator and government transportation safety specialist. In today's news ripped from the headlines about AI, Elon Musk has created a new AI company called X.AI, a Nevada corporation. Little is known about what it's intended to produce, and Musk has been silent about its goals. Many people have pointed out the apparent contradictions between his public statements on the need to limit AI with its potential for existential risk, and his development of advanced AI at Tesla. This venture certainly crystallizes that dichotomy even more. It seems to me that it's likely a reaction to the recent success Okay, spectacular success of OpenAI with ChatGPT, of course, which he was a co-founder of in 2015, but walked away from in 2018 when OpenAI started keeping the source code of their products secret. X is also a name he's attached to Twitter, where he seems to have a vision of something called an everything app. He's been reported to be buying up a lot of GPU hardware, and most of Oracle's spare servers for AI computation. I have to acknowledge what's obvious to most people now, that where several years ago Elon Musk was an outstanding role model for someone who was using their extraordinary abilities to shape a literally world-saving agenda that I made frequent commentary on, he's become more of a loose cannon since his purchase of Twitter, and so some Trepidation is inevitable when he makes big moves with mystery behind them. We live in interesting times, for sure. Next week, we will have a special episode. My third TEDx talk was just published, and it's a very timely exploration of whether AI should be capable of empathy. There's a lot packed into 12 minutes, and so I'm going to take a whole episode to deconstruct that talk to give you a whole lot of added value. I guarantee provocative questions that will explore the topic from many angles, ranging from immediate applicability to speculative future. In an era where ChatGPT is producing convincing imitations of human interaction, you won't want to miss next week's AI and You. Until then, remember, no matter how much computers learn how to do, it's how we come together as humans that matters. That's all for this episode of AI and You. Please leave a rating and comment and share with your friends. Get the book Artificial Intelligence and You and see more videos and articles 
at A-I-N-U.net. That's A-I-A-N-D-Y-O-U.net, where you can also send us your questions. Thank you for listening.